Good evening, and welcome to the scholar in residence of Calder Baptist Church with Sister Carol Perry. Uh, Carol is with us tonight for two sessions, and again tomorrow night for two sessions. And um, we regret the rain. Welcome to uh, bright and sunny Southeast Texas in January. Uh, and also, go Tigers. Okay, who are the LSU fans? Hold your hands up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any Clemson fans admit it? We used to have a Clemson member in our church. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait, that lady was just waving to her husband. She's not a Clemson fan. And uh, I bragged on Sister Carol last night because she let me tell you that she was 90 years old. But in the house tonight, we will have a 94-year-old soon. Uh, Jan uh, Hallmark has gone to, to pick up one of our members, Jean Jones, who's a delightful lady. Uh, uh, Jean's husband, there she comes. Jean, I'm talking about you. Come in, come in. And uh, her, her husband died this last year. They met online about 10 years ago and married. And uh, Jean Jones is with us tonight. She doesn't drive at night anymore, so it's a pleasure to have her in the house as well. Uh, if you're here for the first time tonight, if this is the first time for you to hear Sister Carol, would you just slip your hand up real quickly? Okay, we have several, okay. And uh, I won't make the Catholics identify themselves because they might uh, outnumber the Baptists tonight. I'm not sure, but we appreciate having them. Michael Jamail has been a, a, a great friend of Calder Baptist Church by sharing the information about Sister Carol in our community. So there's a little um, uh, program in each seat that has a little biographical sketch of Carol, so I won't repeat it. I'll just say uh, she is a treasure. We adore her. We're so happy she's here, and we welcome her warmly tonight. Thank you, and I hope you can buckle your seatbelts because we're going to have a big journey tonight. Uh, last night, for those, this is just a review for those of you who dozed off last night. Uh, we were taking the first step of this journey with God's people as we came out of Egypt under the guidance of Moses, and we learned how hard it was to live with other people. That if we're going to be building a community, it takes a lot of effort. And we also made a huge step when they stood there at the foot of Mount Sinai and with Moses representing the community, they and God entered into a covenant. And a covenant is nothing more than an agreement. I will do this and you will do that. And last night God said to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people if we have a little, little if there. If you keep your side of the covenant, which was the 10 words from God, right? And we saw those. They didn't look to us as though it was impossible to keep them, but we wandered in the desert with those people and we got to the promised land and we helped them go across the Jordan and they went in. And one of the joys of teaching something like this is time can go by very rapidly. And we probably last night were somewhere 14th, 13th century BC. The date of that Exodus journey is not a definite one, so I can't give you day, hour, week, not possible. 
And I would love to say that from that moment on, everything went beautifully. That they obeyed God and did exactly what they were supposed to do, and everybody became holy, and wasn't it beautiful? But unfortunately, and I'll let you in on a secret, they were human beings. <laughs> and when we have human beings, what happens sometimes? Ah, yes, we become very human. And tonight we're going to see what happens with those human beings. Initially, after Moses had died and he passed the leadership on to his younger associate Joshua and they got settled in the land of promise and Joshua died and the leadership passed to the next person. They were called judges. That's a problem for us because the word judge for us says law court, you know, trials, punishment, crimes, whereas a judge in the ancient world was a combination of the mayor and the law interpreter and your defense attorney, you put it all together, and that's what a judge was. But as we're spinning rapidly forward, I'm going to spin us right down to somewhere around the year 621 BC. Anybody remember? <laughs> Nobody does. Okay, very good. <laughs> we'll make one pause on the way as we spin along toward 621 BC, I would like to stop around the year maybe 1050, 1040 BC. I'm still back there, BC. They got tired of having a judge to be their leader. And they looked around at all of the nations around them and everybody else had somebody called a king. And they wanted a king. And so a group of them got together and they had a demonstration in front of Samuel's house. Samuel will end up being the last of the judges. And they said to him, give us a king. And Samuel said, you don't need a king. You have God. He's taking care of your every need. Give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. So Samuel went to God and he said, what am I supposed to do? They're rejecting me. And God said, no, they're rejecting me. Give them what they want. And God didn't put it this crudely, but I will. Give them what they want and let them see how they like it. And so the first king was chosen, Saul, chosen partially because he looked like a king. He stood head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. And he could be the subject of another whole scholar-in-residence study because obviously he was a deeply troubled man probably bipolar, we would say today, um, definitely had mental issues. He did not work out. And so God chose again, and God chose the youngest son in a family of eight boys. And he was the little kid they forgot to bring to get anointed when they were picking out the next king. And Samuel said, you must have somebody else in your family. And Jesse, the father, said, well, there's just a little kid, we left him in the fields with the sheep. Find him. So little David, he was a little redhead, came in from the fields, probably smelling just like a sheep, and Samuel said, this is the one. And so David was anointed king in waiting. But young as he was, he had one very important thing before his mind. He could not become king until Saul died. And there's a real difficult period 
before David does become king somewhere around the year 1000. That's an easy date to remember and to attach David to 1000 and you have kind of a little anchor there, okay? And the rest of that you can read First and Second Samuel, you can read First and Second Kings, and you will see the ups and downs of having a king. Guess what? They didn't want to pay taxes. Is human nature any different from when it was back in the year 1000? Oh, all kinds of problems. But David had a dream. And the one thing that David did, which I'm asking you to hold on to, is David realized that while he was chosen from a very small tribe, the tribe of Judah, to become king, there were 11 other tribes. And as we know from national and international politics, your tribal origins to this day are vitally important in the Mideast. And David said, I can't have my capital, my, the center of my kingdom, where I'm from. He was from Bethlehem. There has to be some neutral place that no Israelite has ever lived in where we can set up a new kingdom that will bring all the 12 tribes together. And he looked around. And in all of that little country, there was exactly one patch of land that had never belonged to any tribe. And the reason was it was a hilltop, a mountaintop, heavily fortified by a group called the Jebusites. And there was absolutely no way to scale up into that. So when David with his army stood at the foot and looked up at this wall up there, the Jebusites were leaning on the wall on their elbows and they said as they looked down at David's army what they had said to every invader up until that point, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or however one said that in the year 1000 BC, all right? We are so safe and so secure up here that even the lame, the crippled, and the blind could keep this city safe. And David's army general was his nephew, the son of one his, of his older brothers, young Joab. And he went to David and he said, Uncle David, we gotta take this place. And David said, yes, but we can't go up that way. We're not gonna make it. And he said, right, I have an idea. May I go for it? And David said, go. And so what did he do? He went around to the back where there was a water tunnel that brought water up into the Jebusite fortress. And with a group of daredevils, they probably would be seals today, he and that group climbed up through that enormous water pipe. And as most of the soldiers are leaning on the wall, looking down at David's army down below, going, yeah, 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 you'll never conquer here, Joab and his men are behind them holding their swords and saying, yeah? <laughs> and so that hilltop is where Jerusalem is going to be built. And it had belonged to no tribe, so no tribe objected. And once David got that established, he then said, the next thing we have to do is build a house here for our God. Because the Ark of the Covenant was still out there, still in the tent it had had in the desert. And David said, if I build myself a house here, I have to have a house for my God. 
And at first it seemed like a wonderful idea, and David began to make plans, made arrangements with the king of Lebanon, Hiram, to buy Lebanese cedar trees. He began to make deals with the quarries to cut the stone. And then his chief advisor, Nathan the prophet, came and said, David, I hate to tell you, but God says no. That his house has to be built by a man who has not been a warrior, someone whose hands have not had blood on them. And so you can't build God's house. It will have to be for your son to do. David is a complex character and a beautiful one. A lot to learn there, but we are only skipping over him tonight. He's for another date. But David said, fine. I'll get everything ready, and my son can build the temple. And so we know who that son was, don't we, those of us who are Bible scholars here? Uh-huh, Solomon. And Solomon builds the first house for God, and into it comes the Ark of the Covenant with its very special resting place. Now that's all shortly after the year 1000, 900 and something. And then if you read through Samuel and Kings, those books, you will find that the kings of God's people were mortal human beings. Some were good and some were bad. And almost everyone who gets his little reign summarized, it says at the end, and the rest of his deeds you can read in the book of Kings of Judah. But we don't have the book of Kings. If anybody ever discovers it, we're going to have a masterpiece of information. And then, and then, there's an enemy on the horizon. We must speak of this enemy. The most militaristic people ever to have walked this earth. They conquered more territory than anybody else and introduced more new methods of warfare to the point where Adolf Hitler copied them when he began his conquest of the world in the 20th century. And I am speaking of the great kingdom of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, with an A-S in front of Syria. They were militaristic, they were organizers, and they were ruthless. Their capital city was Nineveh. And for those of you who follow the nightly news, it's only a few months ago, we were almost night by night watching while the Iraqis were attempting to liberate Mosul. Remember the siege of Mosul? Well, that's right across the street from Nineveh. So it's up in what today would be northern Iraq. And from there, they were reaching out to what they thought would be the ends of the earth. They wanted to conquer everything between them and the sea, and then they planned to, as fast as they could, go right on down into Egypt. This was their goal. And so they set off with much gusto. And they conquered the crumbling ones first, and then they set up governments and organizations. They built roads before the Romans built roads. They set up a postal system to keep all the parts of the countries together. If you have ever heard of neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night, stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds, 
I invite you to stand on the corner of 33rd Street and 8th Avenue in New York City and look at the chief postal system in that big city. It was the motto of the Assyrian postal system that has been adopted informally by the United States postal system. There was no place you couldn't send a letter in the Assyrian Empire. And then they made another law and they changed the language so that everybody would speak the same language in the world. And that language was Aramaic, became the universal language. And then as they conquered area after area, they never kept their armies there as kind of a police presence, but they deported the leaders of the country, whatever it was, the skilled craftspeople, and those with enough physical strength to do a job. And they moved them to someplace else in the empire, hundreds of miles from where they had been. And they said, now, here you are. Find a way to earn a living. You can't go back home. But do something, because if you don't earn a living, you'll starve to death. And so there were displaced peoples everywhere. And this is the way they were totally unsettling and terrorizing the world. And there came the day when our little Israel of its 12 loosely joined tribes had their own internal combustions and the 10 northern tribes seceded. They formed their own little government up there but they did not have the temple. That was one thing that the two southern tribes held on to, and they did not have Jerusalem. And they began little by little to fall away from their covenant relationship with God. And then finally Assyria looked at them and said, aha, here's a place that's ripe for the plucking. And why those 10 northern tribes, part of their seceding was due to the fact that it was the richest part of the country. There were the great central plains with their orange groves, their lemon trees, their wheat fields. And right across that lovely fertile land came the highway that brought the east all the way down over to the coast and on down into Egypt. And if you have a highway, what can you erect along the highway? Toll booths. And if you put up toll booths, what can you do there? You can collect money. And so the northern part of Israel got to be a very wealthy thing for the plucking. And down south, all they've got is the hilltop of Jerusalem and some scraggy grazing lands around. They don't have any such source of wealth. So the Assyrians came down and conquered the northern part of the country. And I know you have all heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, yes, well, they marched away the northern part of the country, and they have never been found. Wherever they marched them to, who knows? You find people claiming some of them went to modern Afghanistan, some to Russia, some to Central Europe. Doesn't make any difference. They disappeared from the face of the earth, and other peoples were brought in and resettled there. And those other peoples will intermingle with what was left in the land, and they'll become the Samaritans. And you can understand why the Jews down south would hate the Samaritans who had taken the place of their brothers in the north. There are no good Samaritans, biblically speaking. Just a little piece to stow away there. Assyria did not bother to take Jerusalem. 
it was too much of an effort and it wasn't worth a hill of beans in their book. And so life marched on. But there were people who knew that life was not marching on. And again, it's a subplot that we cannot develop. But the prophets, this is their time. The prophets were not future fortune tellers. They were the conscience of Israel. They were the ones reminding these people, you have made a pact with God. You agreed to obey the Lord in return for the Lord claiming you. Are you living as the Lord wants you to? And they were only future tellers in the sense that if you go on this way, you and God are going to come to a parting of the ways. Made no dent. Which is why I wanted to march on to 621 BC when there is a new young king in Jerusalem, King Josiah. And the first thing he orders is a renovation of the temple. He thinks it has been neglected. And one of the workmen comes running to him with a scroll in his hand. And he said, you know, in a, in a corner of a back closet, this is what we discovered. And they unroll it. And it is a part of the book of Leviticus outlining the feast days that were to be kept by the Israelites. And the feast of the Passover is there the memory of their going out of slavery into freedom, that had not been celebrated in anyone's memory in the land. This is how far they have drifted from God. And King Josiah said, we've got to do something about this. And he calls for a religious renewal of a covenanted people. And he has an ally in the prophet in Jerusalem at that time, who is a young chap by the name of Jeremiah. He happens to be my favorite character in the Bible. And I sadly say we cannot spend the whole evening on Jeremiah. <coughs> Tears running down my cheeks. However, Jeremiah is young and he is vigorous and he says, if I've got a king who wants to work with me, I will work with him. And so Jeremiah it becomes partly through the call that he gets from God to be sort of a living witness that if you people go on living the way you are living. God is not going to any longer have a protective hand over you. You are angering your God. He gets a direct message from God that he is to live as if the hard days were already there. He is not to marry. He is not to go to festivities. He is not go to go into houses of mourning. And when they say to him, why aren't you sharing all of this with us? He is to say to them, sorry, but the day is going to come when there will be no more parties. There will be no more burying of your dead. There will be no more celebration of weddings here. Doom is going to come. King Josiah, unfortunately, is killed in a battle with the Egyptian armies. And the whole impetus dies under the next king who is not worthy of the title. And Jeremiah has his secretary, Baruch, write out what God wants Israel to do. And he tells him to take that scroll and bring it to the king and read it to him. 
And so the secretary goes into the king's palace, and we are told it is winter time, and the king is in one of his rooms. It is cold, and there is a charcoal brazier burning in front of the king. And so he says to Baruch, who's Jeremiah's voice, say what you want to say. And Baruch opens the scroll, and he starts to read. And when he gets to the bottom of that column, the king says, stop. And he calls to one of his henchmen, and he said, take a knife and cut that part off. And he cuts it off, and he says, now drop it in the charcoal fire. Read me the next page. He reads the next column. Cut it off. Burn it in the fire. And when the entire scroll has been destroyed, the king says, now go back and tell that prophet what I think of the words from his God. None of this will happen. This is Jerusalem. This is God's city. It can never be touched. And Baruch goes back and he says, this is what happened this morning. And Jeremiah says, have you got another scroll? <laughs> Baruch says, I do. He says, rewrite the words and we will keep doing this. And in the midst of all of this, the Assyrian army has now conquered everything that was handy. And they can't stand the fact that there is Jerusalem looking at them. And as they are making kind of their last plans that maybe this is what they will take, Assyria itself falls to the newest invader. And you know, one mighty kingdom falls and another mighty king rises up, and this time it's going to be Babylon. And Babylon conquers Assyria, but picks up Assyria's war plans and has exactly the same ideas. They too want to conquer the world, and they too want to get to the Mediterranean and then into Egypt. And as long as the war plan is all written out for them by the Assyrians, there's no problem, right? Now what's our next objective? The army general says, Jerusalem, down there. And he says, we shall go for it. And this is where some of the most heartrending parts of the prophecy of Jeremiah are to be found, because he knows that his people are going to suffer. Many of them will die. Their city will be destroyed. They will be marched into exile. Some of them will be left behind, and some of them will go. And something must have happened, and I can't give you any biblical proof of this. I can only tell you the end result. But what I think happened is, one night, he and the other teaching prophet in Jerusalem at exactly the same time, a prophet by the name of Ezekiel, ah, see, ring a bell in your heads, all right? I think they got together. Now, maybe they met at the corner pub. I don't know where they went. <laughs> all right. But they said, we have to have a plan. And who thought this up? I think maybe Jeremiah thought it up. He said, look. We have to, I don't know what we have to do, but he said, one of us is gonna to have to stay here in what's left of Jerusalem because there will be people who need us. They'll be totally bewildered. And one of us has got to go with the exiles wherever they're marched off to because they're gonna need help. Now he says, how shall we do it? Now whether they tossed a shekel or whatever they had from money at that moment, I have no idea. But we know the end result. Ezekiel will go off with the exiles when the conquest comes, and Jeremiah will stay behind. But before 
that end comes. There are two incredible moments in Jeremiah, and they're almost side by side. In the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he's always preaching in the temple courtyard anywhere, and the Babylonian armies are now a couple miles away. And he's been preaching doom and gloom because that's what he saw coming. But this day he stands in chapter 31, verse 31. You can never forget it, 31, 31. And he says, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least even to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This, trumpet blast please, this is the high point of the Old Testament covenant relationships with God. Up until now, God has made agreement after agreement, starting with Abraham as head of a people they have always been with a whole people, but the days are coming when individually we are going to have to claim our God. We're going to, in a sense, move from the identity of being a part of a bunch and somebody speaks for us, and now every one of us is going to be responsible for ourselves. And where is this going to be written? Not on stone tablets. It's going to be written on their hearts. Little biblical biology, please. Biblically, your heart has nothing to do with love, does it? You do not love biblically with your heart. You love with your intestines. Uh huh. I want to fix up the Valentine Day cookies. I, so if you don't love with your heart, what does your heart do? It's the seed of knowledge. You know with your heart. So every time you see a biblical reference to heart, don't think love, think knowing. God promises that in this new covenant, it's going to be written on our hearts so that we will each have a knowing, intelligent relationship with the God who made that part of us. Your head, your brains have nothing whatever biblically. They make no appearance whatsoever. The head serves for no purpose except holding up your scarf <laughs> biblically. It has nothing to do with, and I know this is always a little bit of a shock to people because we've made the heart such a symbol of love. That doesn't come about until Roman times when the Romans decided the heart was the seat of love because they decided that this finger had a nerve that ran up the arm directly to the heart, and this became the finger for the wedding band. It was the finger of love. So, you know, 
married folks, look at your loving finger, all right? And that's because the Romans, now that century is away from this. We're, we're back here in kind of primitive times. We're back here in, you know, 597 now, all right? And the other thing that Jeremiah does, having preached this new covenant, he does something which in anybody's book sounds absolutely insane. He has a cousin who's got a field he wants to sell. Now, you're not gonna buy a field when the invading army is now two miles from the gates of Jerusalem. You're gonna buy a field in Jerusalem? But Jeremiah does. And he does it very ostentatiously. He does it at the city gate, and he takes the deed for that field, and he shows it to everybody. And every place Jeremiah went, a whole bunch of people followed him. He was that kind of a, an attractive character. And he says, you see this? This is a, a plot of land that I have purchased because the day will come when people will once again be buying land in Jerusalem. And I want to make sure nothing happens to this. And so he takes it and rolls it up, and he asks the marketplace to send him an earthenware jar. And he rolls it up and puts it in his earthenware jar and seals the lid. And he says, no matter what destruction comes in the city, this jar will survive. And this is the sign that there is hope to come. And with that, the Babylonians batter down the walls of Jerusalem. The king's two sons are executed before his eyes, and then his eyes are poked out so that the last thing he saw was the death of his children. And then he, blinded, is led off into exile, and behind him starts this procession to exile of anybody who was in a place of leadership, anybody who had any kind of a skill, anybody who was young and fairly stalwart, so that when that exodus out of Jerusalem is finished, what is left behind are the elderly, the sick, the rabble, the people nobody wants. But as this journey starts off, and now I need another trumpet blast, we have the next great revelation from this fall of Jerusalem. And it is in Ezekiel. And I do not warmly recommend Ezekiel for your bedtime reading. He is an extraordinarily complex and in so many ways wildly imaginative prophet. I had one professor who rather jokingly, but I wondered if he were not semi-serious, said he felt that most of the prophecy of Ezekiel was written when Ezekiel was on LSD. <laughs> <laughs> and some of his visions are so absolutely wild that it almost makes sense. But he has a vision, and this is an enormously important leap forward in theology. He has a vision in chapter 10 that I have to touch on, because he's marching off with them. That deal we talked about from the corner pub, it's now coming to place. These are a discouraged, beaten, defeated people. And up until this moment in theological history, every country had its own God. The Israelites had their God. The Egyptians had their gods. The Moabites had their gods. The Assyrians had their gods, and never the twain would meet. When you went from one country to another, 
What you did was you stopped at the border, you took off your sandals, and you clapped them together so that any dust of that country stayed in the country because the dust, the dirt, belonged to the land and the god of the country. And then you walked into the next one. And it would be as if tonight, you know, you here in Beaumont have one god, and I left my god back in New York State. So I'm temporarily godless, if this were that, the way we believed. What's going to happen now is the Israelites are going to learn through this complex prophecy of Ezekiel that their God can move. Now, they thought their God resided in the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's where his living word was, so he must be there too. But at the very end of chapter 10, somewhere around verse 15, Ezekiel talks about this vision of angelic figures, of cherubim, living creatures, and they begin to move, and there is a wheeled chariot waiting there. And as they are moving, in verse 18, he sees the glory of the Lord rising from the threshold of the temple and getting on this wheeled chariot and rolling down toward the river Kebar, which is a branch of the Euphrates River in Babylonian territory. In other words, God's presence leaves the temple and goes with them down the road to exile. This particular verse is responsible for one of the huge mistakes Dan Brown made when he wrote the Da Vinci Code. I wanted to give him advice. <clears throat> he didn't listen. Uh, somebody told him this glory of the Lord, and the word in Hebrew is Shekinah, and glory just means the presence of the Lord. They felt that God was almost tangible in the temple. And somebody told Dan Brown that that was a feminine word in Hebrew, which it is. Hebrew is a gendered language. It is masculine and feminine. And so therefore, they said, this was the consort or the spouse of Yahweh who was traveling. In other words, God was married. And that, if you couldn't remember back to the Da Vinci Code that we probably all read like cross-eyed idiots at one point because it was a compelling story. It's a huge error there. This Shekinah simply means the glory, the, very, the living presence of God. And what this means is that God can move. And if God can move, you ain't going into exile. You can't leave your God behind. God's going with you. And you who are left behind, you haven't lost God. God is mobile. Now, we all learn someplace, second day in kindergarten or something, you know, where is God? And we all learn to answer, God is everywhere. Did you all learn that someplace along the way? Well, this is where they learned it, right here. Up until this point, they never knew that God was everywhere. We're roughly in the year 587 BC. And Ezekiel goes off with them into exile, and he says, God is going with us. And Jeremiah back in Jerusalem says, and God is with us here too. But one other important thing, don't you remember this for the final exam, but here it is, all right? Before the Babylonians batter down Jerusalem, and he knows the one thing they're gonna do is destroy that temple, Jeremiah takes the Ark of the Covenant from out of the temple 
and he hides it so that it will not fall into enemy hands. He did a marvelous job. <laughs> Steven Spielberg and everybody combined, we have not rediscovered where that hiding place of the ark is. But notice, if we're going to have a new covenant, which God is going to make with every one of us in our individual hearts, do we need that sign of the old covenant any longer? It's, it's finished. And I do not believe we will ever rediscover the Ark of the Covenant. So if anybody wants to take you on a trip to find the lost Ark, please save your money. Go someplace <laughs> you really want to go, all right? Now, what I have just done, I'm going to stop right here for a breath, is a couple of very important truths we have just learned tonight. One is that there never will again be God making a covenant only with a people as a, an entity, but it's every one of us. We have to claim God for ourselves. You can't skate in on somebody else's skateboard. And secondly, and this is going to be very important, that we have a God who can move. And if our God can move, where can we go that he will not find us? I remember as a child, that bothered me very much. And so I used to get in the back of my mother's closet, way in the far back where the dust bunnies were. And I would sit back there and I'd say, God, can you still see me? <laughs> I never got an answer, all right? But it's, it's that wonderful sense that we're not escaping from God ever because we don't want to. It's his loving care. Now, I think we have time for a couple questions before it's stretch time. Yes, Brian. I don't know how to put this into a question, but that last thing that you're, it seems like people have gotten that lesson too well now. Because you're like, well, I can worship God anywhere, anytime, <laughs> and I don't have to align with the community anymore. I don't need this. Um, right. That was the favorite argument of my high school seniors. We do Emily Dickinson's poetry, and when the church bell rang in town, Emily Dickinson went out in the orchard to pray, and they would say, see, we could do just like her. And I would say, yes, and do you? <laughs> End of argument. <laughs> yes. So yesterday, um, you mentioned that um, Joseph's brothers always said Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God. They never claimed him as their God. So does that make them wrong since they all thought of it as a uh, it, it's a huge step to claim God as your God. And unfortunately, Joseph's brothers were not the most devout young men on the face of the earth, right? At some point, Joseph claimed God as his God. And that's, this is our challenge. Can I claim God, or will I leave him to Emily Dickinson in the orchard? But that's it's an individual cons conscience act. They still belong to the people. And I think there were some, and this is what you're getting at, comes that group mentality. Like, I'm a good Israelite. My grandfather believes in God. A great-grandfather was Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. So I sort of go along. I just swing on in as a part of the citizenship of believing in God. Well, now Jeremiah is reminding them that the individual is going to have to stand on his or her own feet this group mindset is not going to work in the same way. It will come. It's going to be a while till it comes, but it will. 
All right, well, I think we might generate some more if you have a, a cookie or something to lubricate your brains. <laughs> How's that? So let's take a 15-minute stand-up and resume. Thank you.